Welcome to the Wildflower Half Hour. I'm Isabel Hardman and in this episode we'll be hopping from roadside verges to nature reserves and getting to know a rare plant called Darnell. Wildflower Hour takes place every Sunday night between 8 and 9pm on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook. It's quite simple, we look for wildflowers in Britain and Ireland during the week, take photos of what we found and share them with others. It trends every week and is popular with beginner botanists as well as the pros. But most importantly, it's super friendly and makes social media a much lovelier place. Now, one of the lovely things about Wildflower Hour is how much you can learn from others about good spots for wildflower hunting. And we'll be running a mini series on these podcasts about members' favourite nature reserves. This week, you'll get to hear from me about my favourite spot and from Moira O'Donnell, who leads the junior section of Wildflower Hour Herbology Hunt. Well, my favourite nature reserve is very difficult to pin down, as I'm sure is the case for a lot of people listening to this podcast. I live in South Cumbria part of the time and I'm surrounded by incredible nature reserves. I live on an island called Walney in Barron Furness and at the north end of Walney we have North Walney National Nature Reserve, which is beautiful and has some of the Walney geranium growing on it. And at the south end of the island is South Walney Nature Reserve, which as well as being wonderful for seals and birds, has yellow horned poppies and all sorts of other wonderful plants. We also have amazing limestone pavements in South Cumbria and northwest Lancashire. There's a hut and roof, Gate Barrows Nature Reserve, all of these places are just enchanting and I would so recommend visiting. Um, but I do have one which I think I feel most fondly of in terms of the spread of flora that it has and that's Sandscale Halls which is a National Trust reserve um, at a place called Ronhead in Barron Furness and it's a dune system. It has the uh, it has a large number of coral root orchids growing there, although they are impossible to find. Even someone as sort of obsessively eagle-eyed as I am, I had to give up and ask the warden where I could find them and then we went on a walk that I think was about an hour and a half just to get to the spot where coral roots could be found but they're tiny tiny little orchids that are sort of um, greeny yellow with a pale white flower and they grow underneath a willow in the dune slacks at Sandscale Hawes so I definitely recommend going along there just for that but there are also green flowered and dune helleborines growing in the dune slacks as well and they're wonderful orchids and it did take me quite a long time to find them last summer. Uh, I was wandering around for about four hours. It was right at the end of their flowering season but when I found them under a uh, willow again they, um, they're fabulous plants particularly I think the green flowered helleborine is a really really lovely plant. It's sort of apple green much deeper green than lots of its relatives. There are also grass of Parnassus, there are dune pansies, there are lots of Dactyloriza orchids, Anacamptus orchids, and it's a breeding place for Natterjack toads. It's just a fabulous place, it's beautiful, it has wonderful views, and even in the rain, which is quite common in South Cumbria, it's a really peaceful, happy place to go, so I would definitely recommend that, and all the other nature reserves that I've listed. Hello, my name is Moira and I live in Croydon in South London. Croydon can sometimes get rather a bad press and people who only know the town from East Croydon Station and the town centre can think of it as being a rather ugly concrete jungle. 
However, there are an astonishing 127 parks, open spaces and woodlands in the borough, and I'm going to tell you about one of these places, the very special Hutchinson's Bank, which is my favourite nature reserve. I'm ashamed to say that I'd lived in Croydon for many years before discovering this wonderful place, and I think it's probably safe to say that many other people in Croydon are still completely unaware of its existence. This is perhaps made all the more surprising by the fact that it is situated on the North Downs and is one of the largest areas of chalk grassland remaining in the Greater London area. Hutchinson's Bank has been managed by the London Wildlife Trust as a nature reserve since 1987, and they also manage three other adjacent habitats as part of the same unit. The Featherbed Lane Verge, which is an area of neutral grassland and hedgerows along the roadside, Three Corner Grove, an area of ancient woodland, and Chapel Bank, another area of chalk grassland with secondary and ancient woodland. So there is a diversity of habitats within the reserve complex. This part of the North Downs was traditionally grazed by sheep until the 1950s, but all that changed as Croydon grew and new housing developments were built. In order to restore the grassland at Hutchinson's Bank, grazing was reintroduced in 1995, and during the winter months I like to go for the odd walk to say hello to the lovely sheep of the Downlands Partnership, who are busy doing their bit to conserve this wonderful and important habitat. I first discovered Hutchinson's Bank three years ago when I saw the London Wildlife Trust advertising an open day with guided butterfly and bird walks. Intrigued, off I went in my car to New Addington, armed with instructions of how to get into the reserve. I'm notoriously bad at finding my way around, even armed with maps and navigation aids, and after I'd parked the car, I couldn't find the entrance into the reserve. I nearly gave up at that point, but after asking for directions, I eventually found it and made my way down into an area of the site called the chalk cutting where the open day was being held. The whole site is a lepidopterist's paradise, with over 34 species of butterfly having been recorded there since 1983. At that time, I knew very little about butterflies and moths, and a lovely gentleman called Ted kindly offered to take me on a guided walk. I learned lots about the butterflies, moths and flora of the reserve that day, and I have been back many, many times since. I now use another entrance, which takes me more or less directly into the chalk cutting and is only a 10 minute drive from my house. In summer evenings I can even pop in on my way home from work. In the three years I've been visiting I've gradually explored most of the reserve, but practically every time I visit I see or learn something new. When I am there I love the fact that although it is so close to habitation it also feels so far away. I remember on one sunny evening hearing the tinkle of an ice cream van on one side and the call of a pheasant on the other. The entrance I now use is also right beside the Featherbed Lane Verge, where the bee and pyramidal orchids grow. I still find it slightly incredible that I can go and see wild orchids growing in Croydon just a short drive from my house. At first, because of my aforementioned inability to find my way around, the Chapel Bank site eluded me for some time, and it turned out not to be the place I first thought it was. I eventually found it for the first time last summer, and was practically beside myself with excitement at what a wonderful site it was for wildflowers, including more orchids. I found common twee blades and common spotted orchids, and this year I am on a mission to find the broad-leaved helleberines and greater butterfly orchids which grow there. Apart from the orchids, in the spring and summer there are many other wonderful wildflowers across the site, typical of chalk grassland and woodland. They are too numerous to list them all here, but some of my favourites are greater yellow rattle, wild marjoram, field and small scabious, dwarf and carline thistles, bugle, yellow wort and autumn gentian. There is also common bird's foot trefoil, horseshoe vetch and kidney vetch. Kidney vetch is important as it is the larval food plant of the nationally rare small blue butterfly. 
I've been lucky enough to see some of these tiny butterflies flitting around the chalk scrapes. In the woodland there are wood anemones, bluebells, yellow archangel, sweet woodruff and goldilocks buttercups, and speckled wood butterflies dance in shafts of sunlight. In the autumn there's an abundance of berries on the wild privet, buckthorn, wayfaring tree and gelder rose, and of course there are haws, sloes and rosehips aplenty, some of which ultimately find themselves in some alcoholic beverage or concoction. I feel very lucky to have such a special place so accessible to me and plan on spending many more hours there in the future. Thanks, Maura. And if you'd like to tell us about your favourite nature reserve, please do get in touch on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook and we can take a short clip of you talking about it. But we do also know that nature reserves aren't the only place to find wildflowers. In fact, it's pretty satisfying discovering how many grow on our routes to work or school. This week's challenge is to find wildflowers growing on verges, which are becoming an increasingly important habitat as we lose more and more meadows. One flower that you'll be certain to see when you start hunting is the Danish scurvy grass, and I spoke to Plant Life's Trevor Dines to find out about it. So Trevor, what is the Danish scurvy grass and why might it be quite useful for this week's challenge? Yeah, Danish scurvy grass is that little coastal plant uh, originally found particularly on our, our west coast all around the, the, the seaside that has literally <laughs> made inroads into Britain, well particularly since the, the 1980s, spreading inland on our, our road network and it's now at this time of year it's the plant to see on our roadside. I've just been driving around where I am up here in North Wales and there's lovely displays now of, of celandines, daisies and dandelions on, on the verges but nearly all the major roads have got this lovely little garland if you like of uh, tiny little lilac and, and white flowers and, and everybody can see them by the side of the road. And as well as the flowers how do you recognise them? Have they got distinctive leaves or distinctive growth pattern? Yeah, it's a it's a tiny little plant, so I wouldn't recommend getting out of the car and having a look at it. You can you can sort of identify it as you're going along. Tiny little flowers and uh, four petal flowers, which are they're normally they're well they're they're either white or lilac, and then the 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 small leaves are slightly pointed and quite thick and succulent. So it's similar to or it's related to common scurvy grass, but common scurvy grass will be flowering quite a bit later. And common scurvy grass is a much bigger thing with, with almost always white flowers. So it's this tiny, I mean, often it doesn't grow more than, than a couple of centimetres tall. And you'll see it right at the very edge of, of, of the road. It almost looks like a, a mat of low-growing thyme, doesn't it? That was what I first thought when I first yeah. saw it. I thought, that's early for thyme. <laughs> that's right. I, and, and, it, I, mean, yeah, I, th- I think what's astonishing is, is that you can sort of travel up the, the M5, yeah, it's particularly our motorway network that it's spread onto, and you just get sheets and sheets and sheets of it, mile upon mile upon mile of it, growing lo- along the, uh, like I say, that, that little edge. It grows on the edge of uh, uh, where you see that sort of vegetation that's been burnt back from the edge of the road in the little area that we sort of call the the salt burn and and this is this is sort of the key to to how this thing has spread inland so it likes salty conditions and it finds those salty conditions on roads as well? Yeah, it's, it's one of a, a, a group of plants that have spread inland since we started using salt on the roads in, in the winter in large quantities, really from the 1960s onwards. And it was sort of probably the, the mid-1960s, early 1970s that people started spotting Danish grass on roadsides. The first sort of cluster of records was really on the A, A11 in 
Suffolk. And then soon after that, it appeared on the A45 in Cambridgeshire. And then it started spreading from, from there. So it sort of went down to Kent and across to Surrey. And, and there was a real sort of little boom of excitement, particularly within, within the, the BSBI, of, of, of people spotting this thing, not just appearing, but starting to spread along, along roads. So through the 80s and the 90s, people were reporting it more and more. So it sort of got onto the, the, the M6 and then the M5. And you know, literally, you could plot out the road network with this spreading through the, uh, the countryside. And what's really nice now is that with the really detailed mapping that, that we've got, you know, those, those much more detailed records, you can actually make out not just roads, but individual road junctions and things like that, where this plant is spreading. It started at the coast and it can tolerate salt. So it's not many plants can tolerate very high levels of, of, of salt. It's about 38% of our flora can tolerate salty conditions. And they do this by having uh, high levels of vitamin C inside them. When salt gets into a plant, what it normally does is, is sort of rip apart the chlorophyll and the you know, cell contents, the, the organelles within the cells, and they start producing things called free radicals in, in response to this, which are, are sort of quite aggressive chemicals that disrupt the chemistry of the plant. But Danish grass and, and in fact lots of other cabbage family plants have got high levels of, of, of vitamin C inside them and vitamin C stops these free radicals in, in their track so they don't have that damaging effect. It sort of controls the, the damage of the seawater if you like. And that vitamin C is why it is scurvy grass. So the high level of vitamin C, you know, people realised that the, all these scurvy grasses could treat scurvy, which is a deficiency of vitamin C. So there's a nice little sort of story there how taking scurvy grass cures scurvy and it's the vitamin C that allows it to be on, on, the, on the seaside. That's amazing. And how is it actually spread does it spread vegetatively or does it spread by seeds is, is it actually the case that cars are also helping with its dispersal yeah they are we did a little experiment when we did a uh, i was involved with a, a channel 4 program a couple of years ago called called wild things and we did this uh, little experiment looking at the at the seeds and and how the seeds were spread and basically yeah you're right it's in the it's in the slipstream of, of vehicles very lightweight seeds danish grass is actually an annual so it'll it'll come up every year from seed and the seed can travel uh, you know hundreds and hundreds of meters in the slipstream of of cars people have mapped this thing and it's generally it, it it sort of spreads around on roadsides between 6 to 12 miles a year but in uh, Worcestershire they've actually the rates there have spread about 19 miles a year which apparently equates to 3.5 meters an hour uh, so for for a plant that's a, a really fast dispersal mechanism the closest part of the road is, is where the salt is being laid, is being spread, and that's right next to the vehicle's slipstream, and that's what's spread. And in, that's how, what, how it's uh, helping to spread. And interestingly, there are obviously other plants that are spreading from our sort of coastal little seasides into the roads using this, this same mechanism. And there are a couple of sea spurries. So there's lesser sea spurry and greater sea spurry, both of which are, have been found on roads, but uh, lesser sea spurry has smaller seeds than greater 
sea spurry and it's the lesser sea spurry that's really spreading quickly on our on our road so it's a it's you know it's that combination of being able to make use of that little niche that's that we've created on our roadsides and the combination of that and and the ecology and the biology of these species that, that allows them to spread so you know that's why we don't see very much thrift on our roadsides or or siasta these other seaside species their seeds are too large to spread around but things like reflex salt marsh grass but corn plantain things that have very small seeds that they're moving into this niche as well which which is amazing now does this have a downside it's very impressive that a plant can move so well along our road network but it didn't belong there initially is it a good side effect of actually the environment being uh, well destroyed by roads and plants being adaptive and entrepreneurial or, or are there bad sides to local ecosystems floras changing like this it's a really interesting point and, and one that we sort of considered when we were doing doing the atlas and mapping the plants spreading on, on our verges do we regard them as introduced because they're in a habitat that is man-made you know they, they wouldn't be there if it wasn't for the salt there or are they just a native plant occupying another part of their of their range that's become available and i think to answer your your question there i don't think these roadside verges are man-made habitats and you know we know lots and lots of different plants grow on them about 700 species of our flora grow on on roadside verges and the salt spray the salt effect is is on a very narrow edge next to um like say next to the carriageway so i don't think they're i don't think we should regard them as as sort of bad things that are spreading i just think it's a wonderful <laughs> example of uh, you know an opportunistic spread of, of a plant into a habitat that we've created and of course what about what's going to happen in the future are we going to end up in a situation where our climate is so mild in in britain we're not spreading salt on our roads anymore in which case all of these halophytes these salt loving plants will will presumably sort of disappear and, and die out again for the last few years in fact we haven't been spreading as much salt uh, on our roads in the winter as we had in, in the first part of the 2000s it's only this winter that's been so long and so hard obviously huge amount of salt has been spread uh, and that that'll keep the, the scurvy grass and the other things going so it's a man-made habitat and i think we should just relish and have awe and wonder at this thing moving in and making its little home there well, at least the scurvy grass has enjoyed the long, cold winter, even if wild yeah, flower hunters right. <laughs> haven't. Yeah. Is it called Danish scurvy grass because it comes from Denmark? I don't know, actually. Whether it was originally named over there, I mean, it's a good native British species. It, it's been here since the last ice age, along with, with so many of our other uh, our other plants. Um, I don't know, actually. That's, that's a good one for, for people, if anybody knows why it was first named Danish scurvy grass. Let us know. But there are a couple of different species of, of scurvy grass in Britain I mentioned common scurvy grass there's Pyrenean scurvy grass as well or mountain scurvy grass and a couple of others that that, that sort of spread in, into this habitat as well but it's a lovely little thing but no I don't know I don't know why this one is particularly called Danish scurvy grass I'm afraid no. That was Trevor Dines from Plant Life on the Danish scurvy grass and a quick reminder that Wildflower Hour members can get a half price membership of Plant Life. Just enter the code WFHOUR when you check out on their website and do tell friends to join this charity, which is a key Wildflower Hour partner. Now to take part in the Roadside Verges Challenge, all you need to do is get out looking on Roadside Verges. 
I won't patronise anyone by telling them not to do anything idiotic when in their car or on their bike. But if you can, do take photos of what you see, upload them to Twitter or Instagram using the hashtag roadsidechallenge or add them to our Facebook group. Now, speaking of doing idiotic things, our last item is on a plant that had such a crazy effect on people, it led to the development of the drug LSD. Dominic Price of the Species Recovery Trust is tasked with the conservation of the strangely named Darnell. And I wondered what on earth he was up to. Don, what is Darnell? It's got a hilarious name. Yeah, so Darnell, which for some reason I always want to say in in a strong... Southern American accent of Darnell. Uh, it is a it's a type of ryegrass. Um, so it's a lolium. So that you've probably heard of a thing called perennial ryegrass, which I think is probably now the most common grass in the country because it's the stuff which is grown as as, as silage. This is a type of lolium called lolium temulentum darnell, and it's a grass which pretty much went extinct about sort of 20 years ago uh, and we were approached by Natural England who were doing a project as part of their 2020 biodiversity commitment which is trying to sort of reduce biodiversity loss in the UK and essentially they wanted to bring Darnell back so they talked to us and said is this something that we might be able to do. And so what are you doing to try to conserve it? So the first thing we had to do is try and find some seeds of it to start off a reintroduction program now we thought this would be relatively straightforward because we knew even though it had become extinct um on the uk mainland it was there was talk that there was lots of it across europe still so we contacted all our partners sort of right the way across europe and then amazingly they came back one after the other saying nope we don't have any darnell anymore so we then had a bit of a panic um that we weren't going to be able to get any seed and it's this sort of terrible point with the reintroduction project that you think we've left it too long we just can't even get the seed anymore so there was a fairly sort of grim few months where we panicked about how we were going to do this and then eventually um we'd heard rumors of a population growing on an island called Inishman, which is one of the Aran Islands off the coast, the, the coast of County Clare, off the west coast of Ireland. And we got in touch with a, there's a life-funded project out there called the Aran Life Project, and we got, we got in touch with a chap there who said, yes, we still have it. We don't have very much of it, but it pops up every now and again in the rye crops on the island, and he could send us some seeds. So we initially, I think we just got 12 seeds, which is an unbelievable tenuous start to a project um, you know from a sort of genetic genetic point of view and those seeds went to Kew Gardens um, and amazingly I think they didn't all grow I think they only got about six of them to grow but from those six seeds um, we managed to get really good plants and the, the great thing about the plants is actually they produce hundreds of seeds per plant so we pretty soon had about 700 seeds and by the second year we had thousands of seeds and then we were able to look at places we could start growing it. And so where have you started introducing it? So what we've done, because it was this is very much a sort of medieval plant, we figured it's it's very unlikely to ever kind of do do that well in the countryside. Plus actually there's other there's other issues which we'll talk about in a in a bit why we don't necessarily want it out in the countryside. So we approached the sort of archaeological 
restoration sites. So the first site we use is a place called Butzer Ancient Farm um, in Hampshire, which is it's an amazing place. It's essentially a kind of medieval um, Neolithic village where they've built the sort of buildings people used to live in through the ages. And actually all the way through, they've got a Saxon house and a Roman house as well. And they had a small trial bed where they were growing ancient plants. So these very old forms of wheat, like Emma wheat and Einkorn wheat and so forth and so forth. So that was a sort of perfect opportunity to grow it there. Um, and there's other centres around the country. So there's the um, Ancient Technology Centre in Dorset, Flag Fen over in, in um, East Anglia. So we approached all these sites and essentially set up these network of sites growing it up there. And it was it was pretty hard. You know, we, we had very sort of low rates of success the first year. And then gradually we've got slightly better at growing it. And we've now started producing enough seed and the great thing is now we've got it back in the millennium seed bank so having had absolutely no seeds there when we first approached them they've now got sort of kilos of the stuff which is great so that's the kind of backup if it should go extinct again that we know we've got it there but you don't want to introduce it into certain parts of the countryside it sounds like darnell is quite a a threatening character Yes. So the big issue with Darnell is that it's it's very prone to a fungal disease called ergot. Uh, well, ergot is the fungus which, which grows on it. And when that's eaten accidentally, it forms a disease called ergotism uh, in, in humans and in livestock. Um, and ergotism was a massive thing in the medieval period. Um, it's, it's a very sort of unpleasant disease because the, the first symptoms of it is you start it's a it's essentially a psychoactive compound so you start to hallucinate and start having spasms and the other name for it was was St Vitus's dance and it was a big thing particularly in sort of eastern europe in medieval times the whole villages would be affected by this and unbelievably they used to kind of march them all into the village hall and play music to them and hope they'd dance it out of their system so there were these big sort of get-togethers with people suffering from it utterly bizarre but the other big thing with it because of the hallucinations it became really connected with witchcraft um and they now think somebody did a very interesting paper looking at the salem witch trials in massachusetts and looking at weather records and they think for the two years leading up to the witch trials they had these very very damp autumns um because there's there's a key thing with ergot that if the crop is standing at the end of the summer and gets rained on that really sort of triggers the growth of it and they think the girls involved with the witch trials had basically just developed ergot and that's why they were having these sort of hallucinations and this you know what looked like possession by the devil so it's had some really sort of interesting times it's popped up in in medieval history so you are trying to reintroduce a plague plant to the United Kingdom. I know you've had existential crises over watching ants that are propagating field cowie, but I have to say this sounds like quite a good point at which I should ask, why are you doing this, Dom? I know. It's it's not it's not a project without without its controversy. Um so I mean the the, the, the simple thing to say is, is this is you know it's part of the UK's biodiversity twenty twenty policy, so we've been paid to do it. So I'm now gonna remove any kind of moral responsibility from it for ourselves. I think the the thing about Ergot is that the significant thing for Darnell was in the old days a lot of rye crops were growing now hardly anybody is growing rye so it tended to be a specific contaminant of rye um also the thing to say is ergot 
funguses all over the place so if you ever look at full soak grass sort of towards the end of the summer you'll see loads of the heads have gone black so this is a fungus which is absolutely everywhere it wouldn't really ever be darnell that that, that bought it back because it's it's there it's out in the countryside and this is why you know farmers use fungicides because without it you know i think i it's never been eradicated it would always be there um the risk is when you harvest a rye crop, the seeds of the darnel are very similar to the seeds of the rye. And then it, if you then use that rye crop to make specific rye bread, then that could have a contamination. But nowadays, there's so much sort of regulation on, on sort of fungal infections of crops that it's very, very unlikely to go into the food chain. That said, as a precaution, we are not introducing it to sites where, where harvests are taken for food so um that's our sort of precautionary principle with it long term i mean i don't know why I, I think what we're really trying to achieve is you know the big thing as i said getting the seeds in some millennium seed bank um learning more about how to grow it um and in fact the trials we're doing this year we're growing it in amongst um fields which are sort of grown for bird seed so that it's not it's not going into the human food chain but we're trying to grow it in amongst rye and see where it grows there um i mean i should say on on inishman it it harmlessly grows amongst the rye crops there because they use that um for thatching and the the key thing about this project for us is we actually went over to inishman this summer um to have a look at it and it is absolutely brink of extinction there because there's only two farmers still growing rye um and actually thatching their roofs with it nobody nobody thatches their homes anymore it's only barns which are thatched and increasingly as we saw um on the island there's hardly any thatched barns because if you can buy corrugated iron it's so much cheaper and easier so the the two people who are still growing the rye both of them said we probably won't be doing this for much longer because the you know the, there's not much in it so i th- i wouldn't be at all surprised if in the next 10 years it goes extinct from there and that you know that's one of the last sites in northern europe so i think had this project not happened when it did we would have lost it um and in terms of you know these sort of hidden uses of plants for medicine if you think you know what the ergot and all the stuff around it led to it's such a fascinating compound i mean the chap who discovered lsd was working on ergot it was an accident one day in the laboratory he was handling the fungus and then had the world's sort of first documented lsd trip which weirdly then timothy leary stumbled across his writing and thought you know this sounds this sounds like a fun day out and that was where the whole sort of lsd revolution came from so it's um slightly deadly but but massively fascinating at the same time That was Dominic Price from the Species Recovery Trust. And that's all for this episode. Thanks for listening and do enjoy wildflower hunting this week.